This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code Return of YHP all one word for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Listen, guys, I know what the deal is this week. Tomorrow is the election between Donald J. Trump and Joe Biden. And I know how distracted I am. I have seen the download numbers dip a bit in the weeks before the election. I am not angry or let down by that. It is natural. We are all, many of us, I should say, are very wrapped with attention as to what will happen tomorrow, whether or not we find out tomorrow night or we find out over the next week or so uh, as votes get counted. I don't know how that's going to turn out. But look, I, I forgive you all because I forgive myself at the same time for binge listening to the 538 podcast. And uh, I mean, I tweeted a joke the other day that my new spiritual practice is waking up and first thing checking the latest odds on the 538 election forecaster. Uh, And this is not a good, not a good spiritual practice, not a good way to start my day. I am no good 
at uh, when it comes to this topic. I am as anxious as anyone else. And so I thought, you know, I'm not going to do a regular episode here that the next few that I've got queued up, I just I think they're too important of conversations to play to put them out the day before the election. Um, and I had an idea this past week of what I might do instead, because friend of the podcast, John Ward, he was the recent guest on this last summer, I think it was Evangelicals and Conspiracy Theories. He put out a very good episode last week on his show, The Long Game. I asked him for permission to replay it here, and he said, yes, you have permission. He didn't actually say that. I kind of wish that he had. Uh, joke opportunity missed there by you, John. But anyway, this conversation that he is has in this episode that you'll hear now is so good. It is, I, I think, a very empathetic look at evangelicals uh, and some of the stuff that they are concerned with, um, both at their best and their worst. And I felt like it gave me some really good context, shared it with a few other friends. They agreed. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think it's worth playing here. Um, instead of trying to do a You Have Permission episode, The Long Game is one of my favorite politics podcasts. I should say it's one of really only four that I listen to. I listen to that. I sometimes listen to The Ezra Klein Show. I often listen to The 538 Podcast, although that will change after the election. And I always listen to Shields and Brooks, the PBS NewsHour, like 10-minute, once-a-week, you know, super short uh, thing and that's really it. That's 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 mostly the extent of my politics listening because it does make me anxious. Uh, but John's show is so good. He focuses on institutional health and and vitality, polarization. He looks at uh, the intersection of politics and religion fairly often, um, partly because of his own background as a Christian. Um, and he, as you probably know if you've listened, he is a uh, reporter for Yahoo News. And just a very sharp guy. Um, he's very interested in free speech and voting rights as well recently and covers those beats, I think, very well. Uh, I just I trust him as an information source and a commentary source in a world where I don't trust all that many voices anymore because so many outlets and pundits have fallen prey to the financial incentives of preaching to the choir and red meat for the base. And so I'm very grateful to John for not doing that and just being a good reporter and a good analyst. So that's a long intro. I figured, you know, you might want to hear a little bit of my voice since I'm not going to be on this episode. Um, in the coming weeks, we've got some really cool stuff. We've got a couple interviews with uh, people who run Bible podcasts. We've got some stuff coming up on spiritual abuse um, and uh, about the future and failures of the church. Uh, just, I'm, I'm really stoked. Very cool stuff. Okay, I'll stop talking. And here's this episode of The Long Game Podcast, hosted by John Ward. Welcome back to The Long Game. I'm John Ward. I did an interview a few weeks ago with a mother and daughter who happened to both be journalists at the same magazine. Uh, it's taken me a few weeks just because of other things to get to it, and the timing actually turned out uh, quite well, which I'll explain in a few minutes. Uh, Mindy Bells has been with World Magazine since its founding in 1986. 
Uh, that's a publication, World Magazine, that is aimed at evangelical Christians. It was started by her brother-in-law, a guy named Joel Bells. Uh, Emily Bells is Mindy's daughter. She's also at World uh, Magazine now. She has worked previously at the New York Daily News and the Indianapolis Star. And a special note, she also worked at Philanthropy, Philanthropy Magazine, which I happen to have spent a short stint at myself in college. I was there, I think, for about two weeks before I quit. Uh, it's a true story. Um, this, But this is a really interesting episode. Mindy has spent 20 years covering the plight of Christians in Iraq and Syria. Th- that's a story that really did get overlooked. Um, before the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, there were about 1 million Christians uh, living there. They were living out a version of the faith with incredibly ancient roots. Many Christians in that region still spoke, and some still do speak Aramaic, which is the tongue that Christ himself spoke. Um, But 17 years later, the Christian community in Iraq has been decimated by violence and intimidation. Only about 100,000 Christians uh, are left there. Uh, The faith has become almost extinct in terms of sheer population size. So Mindy and I discuss a little bit about how uh, how much decisions made or not made by the Bush administration are responsible for this um, really terrible outcome. Mindy's book on this topic came out in 2015. It's called They Say We Are Infidels on the Run from ISIS with Persecuted Christians in the Middle East. Um, and the suffering of the community there and in Syria is, is tough to comprehend for anyone um, who lives in the West, uh, as you know, I do, and, and probably most of you listening do. Now, I first thought of interviewing Mindy when I saw her tweet uh, something last May, um, May 22nd. It was in response to pro- protests at that time against COVID restrictions. This is what she wrote at that time. She said, for six years, I've reported on Christians chased from their homes and churches by ISIS Seen their testimony, steadiness, care for one another. How utterly disheartening to watch the American church come apart in a 10-week shutdown. They shall be known by their demand for their rights. So after I read that, I I reached out to her and she mentioned her book and I realized I should read that. So I read the book and, um, you know, we eventually had that conversation. We talked about... um, the issues in her book, and then we discussed why her experience in the Middle East led her to make that comment. Uh, and we get into the contrasts that she sees between Christians who have truly endured suffering and persecution um, over in Iraq and Syria, and those in America who talk about being persecuted because of restrictions on church gatherings during COVID. Uh, there's an article that I wrote for Yahoo News where I get more into that issue of restrictions. Um, and there's some very relevant commentary in the article from David French, a uh, attorney and writer at The Dispatch, um, who has done a lot of work on religious liberty um, cases. And he says, you know, in a piece he wrote recently, that religious liberty is uh, under threat at times in some of these cases. But he has um, some pretty strong criticisms for people who have charged out, disregarded public health guidance, um, you know, mainly on masks and physical distancing, which is the sort of thing we see um, this weekend 
uh, at a gathering organized by a guy named Sean Foyt, who's a musician and a politician. He ran for Congress two years ago. Um, and, and uh, you know, Mindy and French, their perspective really contrasts uh, with that. Um, French also wrote about how Foyt's approach, you know, kind of thumbing his nose at public health guidance um, really contrasts with uh, churches who have gone out of their way to comply with public health guidance, uh, like Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C., which, uh, you know, went through a series of steps to try to get uh, the city to give them uh, permission to meet outside with masks and distancing, couldn't get it. And then as a last resort, uh, it, it filed a lawsuit and won. Um, Mindy's bigger critique, though, of American Christians is two, twofold. I mean, first, the critique is that they don't know what real religious persecution looks like. But I think the deeper one is that she notes the narrowness of demanding rights to do whatever one wants while disregarding the impact of not wearing masks and distancing on those who are most vulnerable, um, which is not just the older, but also people who are poor and on the mar- margins, those without health insurance, those who are going to avoid going to the doctor or the emergency room if they get sick until it's too late. Um, and uh, she contrasts this with a vision of the common good that characterizes Christians that she met and spent time with in the Middle East who were not just worried about the welfare and the rights of the Christian community, which was under great duress, but was also they were also very concerned about um, working and, and fighting for the common good for the the rights of and the welfare of the community beyond uh, the Christian church. Now, part of the reason people dismiss masks and distancing is because they're following President Trump, uh, but also because they're listening to those who dismiss scientific consensus. And this gets to the matter of critical thinking, and that's where Emily comes in. Emily wrote a cover story for World Magazine over the summer about QAnon, which I've discussed on here a few times before. Uh, some of the characteristics that make people vulnerable to QAnon are, are weaknesses in critical thinking, a lack of media literacy, and a distrust of the establishment media. Um, and QAnon has unfortunately made a lot of inroads, both explicitly and implicitly, uh, in the white evangelical church culture. So I talk about that with Emily, and we discuss the way in which white evangelical Christian influencers, influencers on Instagram were spreading these insane conspiracy theories uh, about tunnels underneath Central Park that led to a child trafficking ring. Truly bonkers stuff. Uh, one other thing I'll say about uh, Foyt, you know, he's holding this uh, gathering on the National Mall in D.C. today, actually, uh, which is, I think, the culmination of a series of concerts he held across the country where he pretty actively uh, disregarded public health guidance on masks and, and distancing and has led these tightly packed crowds in singing together. Um, you know, he's defended the this by downplaying the risk of COVID, which of course has now killed over 230,000 people here in the U.S. Uh, and he's also used arguments like, you know, saying that Jesus touched lepers and healed the sick to argue that it's okay for his followers to gather together despite the likelihood that this is not going to heal any sicknesses. It's going to increase the the, the risk of spreading sickness. Uh, Foyt's good at drawing attention through controversy by flouting, you know, the public health guidance, which would be very easy for him to uh, just encourage people to follow. Um, it's very Trumpian, certainly makes him more famous with the twist that he does it with a smile uh, and talks about love and Jesus. But I think the point of this um, 
episode as it relates to him is that the perspective Mindy and, um, is, is talking about uh, from the church in the Middle East is what about serving others and, and working and thinking about the common good um, and not just the rights of your own community. So here's my conversation with Mindy and Emily Bells. All right. Well, uh, Mindy and Emily Bells, thank you so much for speaking with me. This is the first time I think I've actually had uh, on the podcast itself multiple guests like this and uh, definitely the first time I've had a mother and daughter on together. Um, So it's great to have you both uh, talking with me today. Um, I wanted to start by asking uh, you, Mindy, about your book, they say we are infidels on the run from ISIS with persecuted Christians in the Middle East. This came out in 2016, I believe. Um, and you write, uh, let, let me just let you set the, the table real quick with a real general broad description of the book. Tell uh, people sort of what the, what the story of the book is. The story of the book is about the Christian population in Iraq and Syria, which has a fascinating history I didn't know. And, um, you know, at the start of the Iraq War in 2003, had a population of about a million, and now is lucky to have a population of about 100,000 to 125,000. Hmm. And a a lot of us are familiar with the landmarks of what have happened and what has happened over that time. The war in Iraq, followed by the coming uh, of ISIS, the invasion that emptied, uh, specifically targeted Christian Yazidi communities and emptied them wholesale. And um, but, you know, in in looking back, uh, we can we can honestly say, however, we feel about the Iraq war, that the coming of the United States into this ancient, ancient area that has survived the invasion of Mongols and everyone else uh, ushered in the end of Christianity for, Mm. for all intents and purposes. Mm. Um, And, you know, the decline of that population by 80% is what we can say very specifically for me. It also became something of a personal story because I, I went to cover the war. I did not go to cover the Christian population. I didn't actually really know they existed like most of us and um and and yet i discovered because i am a christian because i'm writing for a magazine that has broadly evangelical audience i discovered this christian population i became fascinated by what was happening to them you know this is a good moment actually for me to ask emily to talk about um world magazine which you both write for and the bell's family Uh, i believe it's your brother-in-law i should have uh this is 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 joel your brother-in-law your brother joel is my brother-in-law emily's uncle who started the magazine um emily can you talk about sort of your family's um role in this institution and and you know um what it means to you as a family yeah i um it started the year i was born actually 1986 and started by my uncle Hmm. and uh, the idea is to have a Christian news magazine that 
covers the news in a rigorous way and an in-depth way, but for a Christian audience and from a biblical perspective is the tagline. So it's um, looking at things through that worldview, I think, is the idea. Biblical perspective is an interesting term. I mean, we're, we kind of con- conversed over email ahead of time about what we were going to talk about. I don't think I'm ready to go there quite yet in this conversation, but I think I just want to put a note, a pin in that term, and we'll come back to that. Um, Mindy, I, I didn't mean to get to this question so early, but you mentioned sort of the consequences of the invasion of Iraq. Do, it's in my notes here somewhere, but I think I can remember the question off the top of my head. I mean, do you feel like George W. Bush is responsible for the decimation of the Christian population in that part of the world? Uh, getting right off to the loaded questions. I, I mean, I I would be one of those people, <laughs> and there actually are a lot of you know very well-known journalists who are covering this from the beginning, who I think agree with this, that, that there, there were valid reasons based on what we knew at the time for the invasion of Iraq. Where things started going astray was when we began this nation building enterprise. And, and, you know, I feel like I even remembered I was there in December of 2003 and suddenly, you know, even, even the stamp on my passport had a, had the U S CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority, and we set up this kind of quasi-government inside of Iraq, and people were like, wait, we were liberating Iraq. Why are we occupying it? And that began what I think is the breakdown. And so, you know, I, I, I do think the Bush administration is responsible. There are books that have been written about all the divisions between the military and the State Department over the conduct of the war and all those things. Um, but, but, you know, you can see you can see the landmarks moving forward. By 2006, as bombs were beginning to to fall and, and, and Christians were being targeted, I was being handed lists of the number of Christians who had been kidnapped or killed. 2006, and um, and 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 knowing churches that were being decimated because their leadership just disappeared overnight and was never mm-hmm. heard from again. And as this war proceeded, the U.S. was focused on the sectarian Mm. fighting, and this is what journalists were covering, between the Sunni and Shia, and not focused on these these minority populations who had been the stabilizing factor in Iraq, the middle class, the business uh, main street class we might think of, and that, that they were not being in any way protected, let alone empowered. And that brings us forward to 2015. And all of that is a long way of saying that there were many decisions that I think were, were, were not really in keeping with our character and our own values, our own foreign policy values moving forward that brought us to the Obama years of, of just, you know, in these forever wars. And we're seeing this again with Afghanistan, that it plays well at home to say as a campaign slogan, and the war, but how you do it has so much to say about what happens to the people, what happens mm. to the people on the mm. ground, the civilian population, what happens to the people who have been some of the most stabilizing forces and have been, um, uh, and, and you know, would normally incite our protection because they are minorities, because they are underrepresented in their own political systems and that kind of thing. 
one of the striking things about the book, um, one of the striking moments, I should say, was talking to a NATO advisor who described for me a meeting with all the commanders, um, the heads, the U.S., the British, the the Iraqi commanders. and, And someone raised the question, and this was long before ISIS. Someone raised the question, what happens if the militants come for the Christians? What will we do? And he said around the room that commander's heads just all went down. No one wanted to answer the question. Mm. And, and, and slowly a couple of them began shaking their heads. And the answer was, we won't do anything. And that's exactly what we saw happen in 2015 as the militants did enforce, invade, and take over a city of 2 million people. And, and then spread out and, and began to take over, a, a, you know, ultimately a third of the country. And I believe they would have potentially taken over at least half, if not all of the country, had it not been for the Kurds in the north stopping them. Mm-hmm. And the missiles mm-hmm. that we fired, um, I should add. We, we fired missiles uh, belatedly as they were third, mm-hmm. as ISIS was 30 miles outside of the Kurdistan capital. I want to ask you about the calculus that went into those answers to that question from the NATO advisor, but I just real briefly wanted to ask you about um, part of what you were saying sounded like an echo of the criticism that Brett McGurk leveled um, at our withdrawal from uh, Syria, I believe. Um, is that do you, do you agree with his uh, his assessment that we've kind of left a vacuum that ISIS is going to fill again? Yes, it is a different situation, but it is a similar pattern. And, and again, I think the problem that we have in the United States is that we have elections every four years. We have presidents who are also campaigners and that it plays well to their electorate to talk about withdrawing from conflict without ever getting into the nuances of what the withdrawal will lead to. In Syria, what happened starting more than a year ago, but most specifically late last year, um, when the president actually issued a memo, like a Sunday night White House memo, saying that the United States would pull back. Uh, We had created a buffer zone between Syria and Turkey that was preventing some of these militant groups from crossing into what had become a stable area of Syria. And the president suddenly issues a memo saying we will pull back and we will allow Turkey, allow is the word that he used, to come in. And that was an invasion. Turkey now occupies an area within, you know, 40 miles inside Syria. Turkey is a NATO power. Mm. The NATO is a non-aggression pact. And, and um, you know, the idea that we, the United States, would allow this and that all the countries of NATO would say nothing about it there to this day. Uh, the occupation is happening. Mm. And the result of that occupation is that Kurdish towns and a number of Christian villages, I've walked through them at length two times in the last year, have been emptied. It's similar to what we saw ISIS do in 2015. And, and the Kurdish forces that are actually sort of an alliance of Kurdish Christian militias, and even some, some militias that have been at times allied with the Assad regime, had controlled that area. And now they have been forced back. Um, beyond uh, a line of uh, a, a zone of conflict that was actually drawn up between Turkey and the United States. I wanted to skip over this question just for the the interest of time, but I feel like I have to ask it. Why 
did the military commanders answer that question so long ago the way they did about, you know, the fact that they would not protect um, Mm -hmm. the Christian minority and why has it played out that way? What is the uh, lattice work under undergirding all that? The lack of incentive. Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, um, you know, you know, if you go all the way back to the Iraq war, David Petraeus, uh, when he was commander of forces in Iraq, was was uh, very good in the early days at creating sort of community based policing forces and and trying to set up provincial elections that the United States in sort of a grant uh, small scale way could help to uh, to promote that whole structure was uh, was um, torn down um, at both the political right. level by the Bush administration and the military level. It was, it was a strategy that was deemed not what was going to work. And, um, and, and it just became no longer that, and, and, you know, the military lives by process. And so the idea of, first of all, standing, staying in support of local communities, and secondly, taking the time to understand the Christian population in Iraq, to understand that they were a small group, but they had outsized influenced in a way that potentially could have benefited the United States. And, and by not understanding those things, it was easy just to look at strategy and say, this doesn't agree with our strategy. Um, our strategy is support the Sunni, um, the Sunnis here and the Shia led government there. And, and very much we got caught up in trying to manage what is still uh, a boiling point in Iraq, which is the, that you have this, Sunni minority that was long in power under Saddam Hussein that was overtaken by a Shia majority now greatly influenced by Iran. And and they're still tugging at each other. The Christians at one time stood in the midst of that. And it's a fascinating story how they were willing to do that. And now they have been wiped out Mm -hmm. as a moderating force there. Um, Last question I had on this until, and then we'll, I'll turn to, to Emily and her reporting on QAnon. Um, so far, our conversation on your book has been at largely at a 30,000 mm-hmm. foot level, you know, discussing geopolitics. But really, this book is um, uh, bracingly sort of individual, mm-hmm. individualistic and, and personal. I just mean there's so many, it's really just an, a, a narrative of m- many different mm-hmm. characters. Uh, people from this part of the world and you kind of come to know them and you travel with them and you share their stories of really unspeakable suffering, um, horrific, horrific trauma and, you know, genocide that that continues Um, loss (laughs) hasn't stopped. Um, is it, would you say it's, you know, gotten any better? In some places, yes, there are some of these communities that were emptied in 2015 that, you know, were taken back over by the Iraq army with the help of the militias that are aligned with Iran. So you have Iranian control, basically, in a lot of these areas. Um, and and in some communities, people are moving back. Uh, their shops are opening. Um, they're re they're fixing their houses. Some electricity grids have been repaired. There's there's internet. There's cell phone service. 
Um, but but having like a, a full life where they're able to elect their own officials, where they're able to open their schools and, and people can thrive and people can look ahead to the future. That has not happened yet. That has not taken hold. It, it's it's in some areas you see glimmers of it happening. But that but, you know, it's 2020 and these people have been, you know, the idea that people are going to live in tents going to live in a displaced situation for five years none of us would want to do that your your children would, should be in college and you're asking them to go you know without an education that will get them there these families are they're literate they're they're professional they speak three and four languages um these are not necessarily destitute people normally but they've been made destitute and so they're looking to europe they're looking to australia there many of them have left they're no longer in iraq they're no longer there to resettle these communities and that's really the tragedy of it most of them um that i interview unless they just have been absolutely traumatized and many have they would love to move back to their homes, but there's been no way, a political way, as well as a just physical way for them to do that. What I wanted to ask as I round this part out is how has the experience of reporting on this, writing this book, developing these relationships and seeing all of this, how has it uh, impacted you? How has it reshaped your understanding uh, your belief system, your understanding of, of your Christian faith. Um, I mean, these are very difficult things that you've had to, you know, deal with, you know, not to mention what these people have had to deal with. Well, the orientation that most of us have in school, um, Western Civ that we used to take, uh, maybe, maybe in a child of the 20th century. Um, and, and, and then even the, the studies that any of us as Christians might undertake of our Bible and Bible history, you know, it, it has a Western focus. And so to learn about the Eastern um, church, the mm. ancient church, is, mm-hmm. um, is a striking experience. And I walked through the ruins of a church that an archaeologist from Mosul said, we think this church was built in 250. I mean, that's, that's close to the nub of things. Mm. And, and you want to know more about that. What I went into Iraq assuming about the ancient church there was that it was a dead church, that it was a it was it was mm. a, a relic. And what I found was that it had been the thing that had been holding these people together. It was their cultural life. It was also their religious life and that they were very much. I, I watched the, the the Chaldean services and the Assyrian services, they were happening the same way that they happened a thousand years ago. They were using the same liturgy. They were speaking in Aramaic and praying prayers together that way. Hmm. And they were doing it because they felt it was valuable to hold on to that. And there's something really striking, I think, for us in the West, our young country, our, our, our young churches, we're always wanting to be on the cutting edge to see what, what deep-rooted life looks like and then once things became so difficult and the suffering increased seeing how those churches because they were so deeply rooted they moved toward each other they moved toward the flame they were willing to go where the suffering was happening the churches in the north when that when the communities in Nineveh plain were free were fleeing they got in their cars and they drove down to pick people up with with isis right behind these people and they came. They just said, this is what we do. You would ask them questions. Why did you do that? And they would say, B- 
because that's what people do for each other. And so there was a reflex built into this rootedness that I have loved. I've, I've not yet gotten tired of learning more about that. Um, thank you for sharing that. That was great. Um, we're going to switch. I'll just yeah. jump in and add on a, on a personal note that, um, I think it's interesting having watched my mom report on all these stories when I was a teenager, um, starting in 2003, I guess, um, we weren't really interested in what was happening over there. So my mom would come back from these trips and even people in our mm. church would say, how was your trip? Yeah. And that was it. Um, so there, there just wasn't an interest in international news, much less even Christians in the Middle East. So um, that was something that grew for me over time watching her. And then I had to read the book really to find out these traumatic experiences mm-hmm. that my mom had. Um, so it, it, it's been, as I've grown up seeing this, um, topic kind of become real and important through my mom's work. You know, I, before we, I I just thought of something. I mean, there wasn't a lot of interest. You're right, Emily. Um, that, that stands out as very true. I, I did notice a couple years ago, um, a guy named Johnny Moore, who, uh, was one of Jerry Falwell's uh, top aides at Liberty University years ago. Um, and I think Eric Metaxas. I think we're raising some awareness about this issue. Was that because of, inside the Trump administration, was that because of this book in some part? I mean, Eric Metaxas' name right. is on the cover. Right. Eric was, at one point, was going to write the foreword to it. Um Yeah, I mean, you know, the funny thing is that this book, I I mean, Johnny Moore wrote a great, compelling book about ISIS that was put out by a Christian publisher, got a lot of interest. I appeared on some platforms speaking with him. I think that the publishers were interested in my book, partly because Johnny's book had had done so well, and it stirred this interest. A lot of things, though, were happening. The Catholic Church at that time was really mobilized because the Catholic Church was putting millions of dollars, the American Catholic Church, into supporting these displaced communities in um, in Iraq. It's, it's one of the sidelights of this whole story that the UN was setting up refugee camps for the Muslims who were displaced by ISIS, but did not support the camps for the Christians and the Yazidis until very far along mm-hmm. into this whole crisis. So they were raising awareness. And, and yes, they, and, and then, you know, the interesting that book came out in 2016 in the middle of a presidential campaign that, you know, right. was now we look back on and say, what happened? You know, we're still studying what happened. And um, I was feeling that because the publisher had set up speaking engagements and I was going and there was a definite turn as, you know, these people were were going to become refugees. They were going to be coming and joining existing communities here in the United States. And suddenly they weren't. And suddenly I was getting hostile questions from Christian audiences that before had been very open and wanted to learn about these people and saw them as brothers and sisters. And suddenly they're hostile and they're asking me, are you sure that they're Christians? How do we know that they are? Are we vetting them before we come? All these things. And just watching how the the Trump um, 
era, the ushering in of the Trump era began to change the way Johnny Moore talked about some of these issues, the way Eric Metaxas, I did an interview with him and he was asking me questions that were very like unrelated. They were political questions. And, and so people were moving and changing. It's a picture of the divisions that we've seen in the church throughout Trump's first term, I think. Fascinating. Okay, so Emily, we're going to change over topics uh, for a moment, for a few minutes to your piece on QAnon. Now, these two topics might seem um, might seem disconnected, um, but uh, I think we'll find that they are connected. Um, you know, the first question I wanted to just ask is, when did you start working on the Q piece, and what was sort of the the origins for that? The origin was that I was covering the COVID-19 outbreak in New York, where I'm based. And um, in March, we had Samaritan's Purse come here and set up a right. field hospital in Central Park. And I got um, some notes from readers who were asking me to check the tents to see if they were releasing children from sex slavery in the tents instead of treating COVID-19 patients. And so... Um, I immediately thought that was ridiculous because I saw the tents being constructed. I saw the doctors treating people. Um, I knew that wasn't I remember, true. I remember seeing your it had spread. I remember on the seeing internet. your tweets the day those tents went up. You were in, you were on Central Park taking photos. You know, right there. Yeah, and there were no holes coming <laughs> out of the ground. Um, so. <laughs> Um, there are tunnels in New York city, but there weren't any tunnels into those tents. So that was the, that was the origin. Um, and that turned out to be a QAnon theory that was spread by actually a Christian on influencer, um, on Instagram. And so that's, um, her name's Rose Uncharted. And she is sort of this homeschooling mom who posts about, you know, her cute children and, um, essential oils and things like that, but also um, has become a big QAnon supporter. And so she posts all these theories constantly. I mean, it's like 30 theories a day. It's a lot. I don't know how people consume all the information that she puts out. Um, but so that that made me realize that this was a real thing among our readership. And so later in the summer when the COVID outbreak died down a little bit here, I decided to um, look into it more and see, you know, hear stories from people who are followers, people who had loved ones who had gotten really deep into it in the course of the pandemic. And it turns out that the pandemic was a real, um, it spread QAnon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, because people were spending so much on time online and um, uh, had time to just sort of go through social media, go down the rabbit holes um, it had spread a lot in the evangelical world. And um, I got just swamped with messages from people who had watched their husbands, their wives, their um, significant others go really deep into this really fast. How deeply do you feel like this has penetrated into American Christianity? I- I'm assuming it's mostly white evangelical Christianity, but I don't want to assume I don't want to assume that that's right. I think it is very white from what I've seen. Um, I think it sometimes reporters give QAnon a little bit too much credit. I mean, I think it 
can, you can be a little conspiratorial about QAnon <laughs> in a way. Um, but I do think it's, I think it's a widespread movement. I mean, um, you know, in terms of uh, how serious it is, I think. Or just how deeply it's sort of permeated uh, Christian thinking, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't think that you're seeing a lot of pastors preaching QAnon, which is a good thing. I mean, I mostly heard from pastors who are concerned about it um, pervading their churches, you know, seeing their members go into QAnon. So it's not at the um, leadership level, but I think it is spreading almost like a viral Internet meme. Um, And I think because um, there is maybe an avoidance of wanting to deal with um, problems like race or other more thorny issues that people turn to something like child sex trafficking as sort of an easy topic to be socially activist about online. Um, and I think that's usually where it's limited is posting on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. That's really interesting. I mean, I, a lot of the exposure I saw, um, or just one sort of line into this was a guy named um, Danny Silk. I don't know if you know that name at all. He's um, no, he is um, a, a member of the senior leadership team at Bethel church in California. Okay. Um, and as far as I know, he's not associated with Bethel music, but um, you know, Bethel church and Bethel music are, from the same place Bethel music as you both I'm sure know is a very very influential um, brand and sort of stable of musicians who who you know create a lot of really um, high level in terms of uh, quality um, Christian music this guy Danny Silk has been posting about QAnon stuff mostly through the, the the lens of child trafficking. And when I went back and looked at his Instagram, which is where most of the stuff happens, it really was, it went from zero to 60 um, overnight, like in July yeah. or, or late July or August. And um, I had wondered how much of it, uh, first of all, how much of it was a way to not have to talk about um, COVID um, and have to not talk or a way to not have to talk about racial justice. Um, you know, what evidence have you seen that that is sort of intentional? I mean, and, and is there, you know, did it just kind of happen out of nowhere? I mean, what created this? It's hard to probably know that. I, yeah, I do think it's decades in the making and just in terms of how we consume information and how we do critical thinking. But I think the more I looked at QAnon content, the more I thought it felt like white in anxiety about society not being the safe, comfortable place it once was. Mm. And, um, you know, QAnon originated on 4chan, which mm. hosted a lot of white supremacist material. So there's not a complete disconnect there. Um and I think it's true that uh, the avoidance thing is is real. I mean, how can you talk about one police shooting when thousands of children are being kidnapped every year? And um, I, I think one thing that I would say just kind of on a general 
note about how we um, read the news and consume the news is that um, we can tend to um, focus on these like big evil things that are happening. You know, QAnon talks about the Epstein case and it's Mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, It's an interesting story about this man who trafficked children essentially and was friends with the Royals and all these powerful people. Um, But you know what anti-trafficking trafficking groups say is that most trafficking does not involve kidnapping. It's done by people who know the children who, you know, school teachers, um, relatives. And so I think there's an element to which we try to avoid the difficult things that are next door to us. Um, and the, the everyday kind of banality of evil that goes on by creating these narratives that are much more exciting and more interesting to read and post about. Have you learned something about uh, American Christianity um, through your reporting on QAnon that you didn't know before? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I think I'm going to unfollow anyone who's a Christian influencer on any social media network. That was the most depressing part to me was seeing how, um, people use their platforms to post misinformation and things that were just not true. Um, I think just in general on Christianity, I, I've been thinking a lot about this because um, Alan Noble put out a really good article at Christianity today about the importance of Christian colleges and how that contributes to our intellectual life as Christians and forms a lot of, you know, journals and research and everything that gives us an intellectual framework for consuming information and for approaching all the kind of daily issues in our lives. And um, I think that is something that we have to care about more, Um, care about how we're developing our critical thinking and what institutions we're supporting that support that, that, that cultivate that life so that um, American Christianity is not just reactionary and mm-hmm. based on internet memes, but something that is deep and cares about truth and puts a lot of effort into making that happen, whether it's, and, you know, maybe connecting this to what my mom was saying, you know, looking to Eastern Christianity for um, some practices and um, ways of going about that to develop a better tradition than what we have right now. Yeah, I mean, when I think about uh, a guy like Danny Silk, who I didn't know who he was before this, but, you know, you look at this sort of explosion overnight and you wonder, okay, what are the various potential reasons for this? One would be he just sort of stumbled across the issue and decided to start posting about it. Um, But then you get into the issue of the, you know, using of QAnon hashtags. You talked about social media influencers sort of spreading disinformation one of the great incentive feedback loops on social media is, you know, attracting followers, getting likes. And so when you think about the ways that these hashtags and these, these issues probably do amplify your follower count, your like count, um, your comment count, your engagement, uh, help you build a social media following that is got to be, I think, part of what's going on here um, in terms of why people are all of a sudden posting so much of this. Um, anyway, that's just a random thought. But, I, you know, the thing I've said about uh, about Danny Silk is like this is a radical 
lowering of the standards that we have for what we decide is true or not, or, you know, it's a radical lowering of standards for how we decide what is credible or not. And I think that's where we have to go um, to like standards for what, how standards for how we assess information. Um, Because if you try to take conspiracy theories on head on, people just sort of take you down the rabbit hole. Um, rather than sort of trying to point to a set of standards for how do you decide what is credible information, let's focus on those standards and talk about that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I have two things that I think are important. Uh, one is media literacy, which is kind of what you're getting at that it's important for people to understand how to assess when something is a reliable source and when it's not a reliable source. I mean, I have people sending stuff to me all day long that is anonymous material, right? And I have to tell them this is not a reliable source, but they saw it from a friend and so it's reliable. Um, And the other thing I think that's important is um, sending someone an article is not going to change their mind. And so the reason we did the story the way we did it was Mm. um, because we think relationships are important. So, um, you know, the story of this son whose dad is really into QAnon Um, The way that he thinks his dad is going to come out of QAnon is by becoming more involved in his son's life and um, spending less time online Mm. and spending more time with his son's family. Mm. And so I think that is also important is that just (laughs) we need to build better, better relationships and um, not be spending our lives um, in uh, on the Internet and doing things that aren't um, aren't benefiting deep relationships you know i almost wonder though how much uh what's the what's the more pernicious effect of q whether it's the people who are all the way into it or whether it's the people who are sharing it without really knowing what they're sharing who are part of this information ecosystem that is increasingly detached from uh reality um but doesn't seem you know the the people don't consider themselves to be part of you know, a conspiracy theory or a political cult, um, which, you know, obviously, uh, I think I sent you the piece from Just Security has echoes of, um, you know, past anti-Semitic um, tropes, which, you know, have really, really disturbing roots in our in, in history. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So we've hit, uh, Mindy, your book, and we've hit um, uh, Emily's work on Q. Mindy, I want to turn back to you and just ask you about we're, we're kind of coming to a place mm-hmm. of convergence here because when we talk about Q and we talk about, um, uh, you know, COVID-19, um, there's some overlap in the way that people are sharing information that is, you know, not credible or not vetted or just and it's not only, you know, white evangelicals, it's not only people on the right, um, but certainly a, a lot of people um, among white evangelicalism have been at the forefront of people questioning a lot of things about uh, sort of established scientific um, uh, evidence about Q. Um, you know, one the thing that got my attention was, you know, when you tweeted, I think on, it was actually on my birthday, May 22nd. <laughs> my gift. Um, um, yeah, yes. You wrote, for six years, I've reported on Christians chased from their homes and churches by ISIS, seen their testimony, steadiness, care for one another. How utterly disheartening to watch the American church come apart in a 10-week shutdown. They shall be known by their demand for their rights. 
Um, what what prompted that? Yeah, I think it was kind of personal, and um, it, you know, there were people even on our staff who weren't happy with that tweet. And a tweet is kind of a thought in a moment, so it's it's not it's it's uh, it's not going to win me any prizes. Mm-hmm. But um, but I was I was working. I'd been asked to work on a timeline. We were, <clears throat> excuse me, starting to put together a timeline of COVID nineteen, and um, at the same time, watching in my own state because I'm home. I'm not traveling overseas, and I'm listening to the governor give us daily briefings as was happening in many states. I have a Democrat governor who early on locked down our our state and. Um, and did it very methodically, did it with a lot, you know, set up a committee, uh, was consulting because I'm in North Carolina with Chapel Hill and Duke and um, other authorities and um, was was kind of laying out careful um, uh, justifications for the restrictions that he was putting in place. That was in March. That was six weeks after the Trump administration declared the coronavirus public health emergency. And that was the basis on which he was doing that and declaring state health emergency. So it seemed like this orderly mm-hmm. thing. And, and I had this impression that, you know, we had, we had like a bat and maybe planes to blame for the coronavirus, not that it was a democratic or Republican thing. And I'm starting to see on my own social media feeds, even people in my own church posting things about our governor, mm-hmm. uh, like making fun of him for getting a haircut um, and, uh, and, and making comments about that. And, and so this kind of, this sort of, um, sudden sar- sarcasm and snarkiness about what was a health emergency. We had, we, I thought we had agreed about that. And, um, and then at the same time, watching the protests begin and in, in my own state in Raleigh, we had them early on. Um, and these are the reopen uh, protests. Yeah. Anti shutdown. Yeah. Yes. And then and then they began in Michigan and Mm -hmm. um, other places. You know, I think as this thing has moved forward, there have been some legitimate uh, concerns that that churches have been discriminated against in Nevada, for instance, in the way that, you know, casinos were allowed to stay open while while churches were under these very tight restrictions. And there's certainly a case to be made for some of the restrictions in in California but by and large you had I, I was suddenly feeling in my own church community and among people that I know uh, abroad um, that that there was this idea that it was it was open season politically and that instead of coming together you know as, as we've done as a country to fight Nazism or terrorism and in, in, in really powerful ways that we were going to come apart which in fact we kind of have over this and the and the tearing of that is simply that we now can't trust any coronavirus remedies we now are having a debate about a vaccine that's not even here yet and and these resistant groups to uh, vaccinations it is is literally a health threat to our country, and it and it is one of the reasons that this whole thing has been prolonged. It was all of that frustration combined with what I was talking about earlier, of watching from 2015 forward. I, I've been in Iraq and sometimes Syria every year since then, and um, going into you know seeing so many communities, whole churches displaced. And yeah. how they are forced to live in, you know, an, uh, an unfinished high-rise hotel, or in a in a tent camp, 
and how they have moved towards serving each other and how they have, and yes, they have advocated for their rights. Someone tweeted to me that, well, they don't have rights to advocate for anyhow. Well, they do. They have a constitution. They have a UN Declaration of Human Rights. They have many things to appeal to. And yes, that has been happening. The first thing that has been happening has been caring not only for one another, but caring for the community that they live in. And mm. to watch how, um, you know, there's a real divide in this region between the old churches and the new churches, the newer evangelical churches that we would all be able to find sort of relate to um, in how they do worship. There's always a, a tension there. And, and many of those tensions fell away during the ISIS crisis. And, um, and they also moved toward Muslims and they moved toward the Yazidis and found ways to care for them too, because the government wasn't doing it. And and that's what I was just mourning, really. It was really just kind of a grieving that we haven't been, but that hasn't been what's been at the forefront. I think it's happening. It's not something that we're covering, maybe like we should, uh, but it's, it's not at the forefront. What's at the forefront is a picture mm. of an angry church that's out in the street demanding its rights when a, a whole community is threatened by this coronavirus. I think as we sort of near the end here, the, the themes that I am seeing in this conversation um, are things that I've been thinking a lot of uh, thinking about a lot this summer. Um, you know, but I think there's two elements uh, to what you're talking about, Mindy. Well, one would be sort of a persecution complex among uh, American Christians which when set side by side with the experience of Christians in um, the Middle East, uh, you know, looks, looks silly. Um, and, you know, and I think that, that's, a, that's a very long conversation all on its own, mm -hmm. but I just want to put that down there for a minute. And then the second thing I, I see just in both the QAnon conversation and the, the COVID conversation, because, you, you know, you've – You've got plenty of misinformation on COVID as well. People claiming that there's only, I guess, 10,000 deaths be, uh, because of basically a CDC number taken out of context. Um, a lot of misinformation about uh, masks, as far as I can tell. You know, the scientific community is pl very clear that, that this is a, a key way to help us reopen um, and to, to, to be uh, as open as possible. Um, and so I think the second component I'm seeing is just a lack of critical thinking that, as Emily mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, has been decades uh, in the making in terms of uh, evangelical Christianity. Mark Knoll wrote a book in 1995 about this. Uh, and I think that leads to a lack of discernment, honestly. Um, and uh, so I was wondering if, you know, I, would, I just wanted to throw both of those things out there. Um, you know, you've got a... a, a what did I put a persecution complex, which I think relates to faith, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of, um, what I'm trying to get at when I talk about sort of, uh, challenges facing the Christian church, whether it's in the middle East or whether it's in America, regardless of the scale of them is what the response is, is the response to challenges to, uh, to be, um, you know, move forward in faith and in love, um, as I think the Christian, you know, tradition teaches us, or is it to recoil in fear, um, and to lash out 
at others. And I just don't see a lot of uh, what I consider to be the true Christian uh, response here in, in so many of these situations. And then I think the critical thinking thing speaks for itself. So either one of you, if you want to weigh in on that, um, feel free. Where to begin? Um, I do think with the Q stuff and the COVID stuff, there's so much um, fear-based uh, information that's being shared. I mean, I, I think if you think of QAnon as an apocalyptic movement, um, a lot of American Christianity, when it thinks about the end times, is very fear-based. And um, we've actually been talking through Revelation at my church. Wow. Um, and uh, he, our, our pastor was just talking about how we don't look at Revelation as an anxiety-inducing text. We look at it as um, Jesus giving us clarity and um, giving us comfort. And um, so I, I think it's interesting to look at American history through that lens of um, anxiety about the end times. And I think that's a lot of what I saw, um, even if it's not explicitly stated that there's this anxiety about things happening in the headlines out there and um, not as much uh, perhaps inward reflection about um, either, you know, looking at the Bible in a strict hermeneutic, uh, healthy hermeneutic way, which is, you know, just analyzing the text in a good way um, or analyzing the problems in your own borders, which, um, you know, the church has, problems that aren't being imposed on it by some persecution outside of it. There are problems with trafficking in the church as, um, you know, I was getting at earlier with looking at your next door neighbor instead of Jeffrey Epstein as a potential um, trafficker. So um, I think those are two different threads of, you know, maybe not avoiding the problems that are next door to you by looking at the headlines and also not, using the headlines as a way to analyze the end times and be fear-based about everything. One of the things that I think is an interesting phenomenon in, in all of this, and not something that I think anyone has um, looked at super closely, and I'm certainly no expert, but but is the it, it gets to something Emily said earlier about, about the importance of critical thinking and, and also a, a point I was making about the rootedness that we kind of expect among uh, Christians who are faithful churchgoers who have, um, you know, are, and who are serious about their faith or claim to be serious about their faith. And that is the, in the, in the United States is the rise of the mega church, the rise of the non-denominational mm. big church. And, and I, I don't say that to cast aspersions on them as a class because there are many great churches and many great things that come out of the community that can be created in that large environment. But, but that seems to be a rub for us right now in the church in the, in the COVID-19 era, the, the people that you're hearing from uh, John MacArthur being a, a prime example and the ones that are having the most trouble are churches that have, you know, 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 members, and they simply cannot comply hmm. with the state standards. But one of the thing about a, a mega church, you know, that's that's hard right now is that mega churches create sort of their own ecosystem. The the friends that I have that are part of them, um, they they go to CrossFit there. They go to you know the babysitter club is there. All all the things their community life is built around 
this uh, this large church sort of conglomerate. And they tend to be non-denominational because they're large. But I would just say that the, the bar for membership is not um, maybe what it is in, in smaller and churches that are attached to longstanding denominations. I'm thinking about this again only because I've seen what rootedness has done for people in the Middle East, that their circumstances are much worse than ours, but their their security is much stronger. And, you know, Christianity at its base is a church for suffering people. It, it is, we have a suffering savior and, and, we, and we have a, a large body of teaching on how suffering has a purpose. And, um, and yet, and I speak for myself, it's very hard to lean into that because the comforts here are so big. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that we have created sort of our own ecosystems to to sort of major on the comforts, and and we're not in a comfortable place right now, and um, and and so there's just a lot that that people are feeling lost about, and um, and and I think that it, it gets to how how well rooted and well uh, taught we are. Um, I feel like we, you know, uh, in, in a lot of ways, we've only scratched the surface of a lot of these things because at the end here, we're, we're getting into issues of hermeneutics, which is how you read the Bible. We're getting into issues of eschatology, which Emily mentioned, which is the issue of sort of the, the, the way you think about the end times, uh, or the, the end of the world. Um, if you are a person of faith, uh, it is really interesting that a lot of, you know, um, Christian, uh, end times theology centers around the part of the world that you've spent so much time in, Mindy. Um, you know, I wrote a little bit about that when when uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo wrote, uh, gave a speech to the convention from Jerusalem. That was an opportunity for me to dig into a little bit of that. Um, and I mentioned Mark Knoll's book. I'm just going to make sure I mentioned the title here, which is The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which kind of wraps in hermeneutics and eschatology together as a lot of the, uh, you know, very deep roots of some of the things we've been talking about. So uh, it would take another, you know, so a, a while to unpack a lot of this. But um, the thing I will just say at the end here is I didn't quite probably grasp um, something in reading your book, Mindy, that I think has, has come out as you've talked, which is that a lot of the Christians who were in Iraq and Syria really viewed themselves. I mean, I read these quotes, but I didn't, I didn't quite make the connection. They viewed themselves as, uh, uh, very important to the common good and their faith as important to the common good, not just for the good of their own Christian community. Um, that was something I would read the quotes in the book and, uh, and found interesting. Um, but I, I actually would, lo- I would love to know, more about it. So if you wrote more about it, I'd love to sort of understand the, th- the thinking actually mm-hmm. behind that mm-hmm. uh, more. Do you plan to write uh, another book? Are you writing another book? Uh, uh, toying with the idea. I mean, obviously yeah. this situation has continued. The situation in Syria is, is different and harder a million ways. Um, and, you know, yet some of the same groups, some of the same people groups, and, and one of them was a, a a, a bishop in Aleppo in Syria that I, I mentioned in the book who had a lot to do with my thinking about this whole topic. I sat with him watching some 
uh, boys in his church play basketball one night when when Syria was not at war. And um, and I said, will you stay? Because things were very, very difficult. And he was talking about how difficult things were becoming. And he said, of course, I will stay. Um, and I said, why? It, you know, this is a guy who, you know, can go to Rome any day, has, has worked on Bible translation committees. He's a well-known scholar. And, and he said, well, th- these are my people. And then he paused and he said, and the Muslims need us. They need to be living alongside the other. And he, d- and he didn't mean that. It, I mean, he did mean that we want to show them a way that we think is a true way to God. He, he did mean that. But he also simply meant that living alongside the other is a valuable thing because it helps you to appreciate what you have yourself and because it simply challenges our way of thinking. And I, I, I think that that's a really mm. valuable picture right now that um, that living alongside the other is is for for a, a Christian. It is something that we're called to do and to and to do it well. Mm. And um and as opposed to living in our own bubbles and just simply because we have we have the great luxury in the United States to choose a bubble um, that we that we need the rubbing. We need what what the scripture calls iron sharpening iron. Um, one of the other Middle East leaders just recently said, you know, Christian our Christianity should not be our identity as a clan it ought to be the mark upon us of uh, as an example of the gospel well lived and and so i think if we if we really value what we believe then then we we want it to be rubbing on other people we want them to experience the value of it whatever that looks like we don't always get to control what that looks like um and and we're always getting in the way ourselves I, at least i am hmm. um but but yeah, I, I think that there's something really valuable about um, a, about seeking diversity, and we talk about racial diversity, but but really being as as Christians being willing to seek the diversity of of other faiths too, and and to be in a mixed community. Well, I just had uh, Eddie Gloud on uh, my, my last podcast episode, mm-hmm. and we talked about his book on James Baldwin, which is a just sort of a, a powerhouse of a book. Um, and one of the things that he wrote in there was that uh, some I'm going to paraphrase something to the effect of, you know, we need to move or we need to move towards difficulty. Um, and I like read that. And thought, you know, I just, I just thought, why does it have to be that way? <laughs> and I said that to him in our conversation. Uh, and I think you've given a very eloquent answer as to, uh, you know, one very powerful um, reason for that statement. So thank you. Thank you both for, for speaking with me. Um, we've, uh, uh, as I said, scratched the surface. There's a lot more we can talk about. But I, I, think, I think we have many conversations ahead of us. So thank you. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks, John. Many thanks to Mindy and Emily for speaking with me. If you like this show, please rate it and review it. 
to help reach more people and uh, please subscribe until next time I'm John Ward this is The Long Game Talking days, we'll need you now.